Yossi Kleinolevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, which presents the Israeli-Jewish view of how Israelis and Palestinians could reconcile their differences. He's also the author of Like Dreamers, the story of the Israeli paratroopers who reunited Jerusalem and divided a nation, which won the Jewish Book Council's Jewish Book of the Year Award. I sat down with Yossi in his office at the Hartman Institute to discuss his work, Israeli-American Jewish relations, the future of Judaism, and much more. I'm Barack Coleman, and this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Support for this episode of Jewish People and Ideas comes from the Mayanot Institute for Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, Israel, which provides a highly academic Judaic studies curriculum taught by a dynamic staff in a welcoming atmosphere. Mayanot's unique curriculum encompasses both the intellectual and inner spiritual dimensions of Jewish study. Studying at Mayanot extends beyond the classroom as students experience Israeli and Jewish culture, as well as volunteer and go on excursions exploring the land of Israel. The result is a fascinating journey of self-discovery and personal and spiritual growth. To learn more, go to mayanot.edu. M-A-Y-A-N-O-T dot E-D-U. First of all, thank you, Yossi, for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It seems symbolic that you went from a basement in Brooklyn to the last house in French Hill, and you went from being a Kahana supporter to the author of Letters, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor. How did you go from one to the other? Well, what, what's interesting, though, is that the basement that I lived in I was in my parents' house in Borough Park, and I had the basement. Uh, our house was on uh, 44th Street between 8th and 9th Avenue. And for those who know Borough Park geography, uh, they'll appreciate the fact that that is a border street. And 8th Avenue was then, and still as far as I know is today, uh, the dividing line between uh, Jewish Borough Park and whatever else is beyond Jewish Borough Park, which we growing up had no interest in. You know, whatever was, was extraneous to Jews was not, not of interest. But at a certain point, I did become curious and I wanted to know, you know, what, what actually lies beyond the river Sambation that, that, that kind of surrounded Borough Park like a moat, and uh, I, I was, I was afraid of the non-Jewish world, but also very curious. And the fact that I lived on a border street and live on a border, in a border building today, where the literally the last row of houses of Jerusalem, at outside my porch, uh, on the next hill, uh, begins. Uh, <laughs> hard to know what to call it because it's still technically munis- Jer- the Jerusalem municipality, but it isn't. It's really no man's land. And beyond that is the Palestinian Authority, and beyond that is, uh, is the Kingdom of Jordan. So from my porch, I can see literally three political entities. I see the sovereign state of Israel, which ends more or less outside my apartment. I see the Palestinian Authority, and then I see the Kingdom of Jordan, and it's all within a 15-minute drive, and at night I see the lights of Jordan. So living on a border has always, I've always 
been a, a citizen of the border. And that's really the place that, uh, that the geographical space reflects, uh, the space that I, I suppose I'm most comfortable being in. And it's not a comfortable place to be, but any other place is even less comfortable for me. So I think that, that a good starting point in trying to, to figure out what led from my very insular, xenophobic childhood growing up as the son of a Holocaust survivor and really looking at the world through my father's eyes and considering myself a kind of a vicarious survivor, a contemporary with my father, which is how my father raised me. And, and to go from there and to seeing all non-Jews as, if not active enemies, at least threats to, uh, to my life today of really trying to reach out across very difficult borders, including the border that I live on. I think the first, uh, the first step is curiosity. And curiosity is a very dangerous, even subversive act because you're not supposed to be curious about anything that's that's outside your Dalit Amot, your why, limited Why are you not supposed to be curious? You're not, if you're being raised in a certain environment whose whole purpose is to keep you locked in that world, then curiosity is, is, the, uh, is the original sin. Uh, curiosity is the most dangerous impulse. And so the idea in any um, fundamentalist world, whether it's religious or political, I didn't grow up in a fundamentalist religious home. I grew up in a in a in an orthodox home, but it was quite open and modern, as they used to call it. And uh, but I very much imposed on myself a kind of fundamentalist politics, where where anything that was that was that would that was other was beyond the pale. But at a certain point, I got curious. You know, there's, there's, there's actually a world beyond Borough Park. And I, I was interested in exploring. And so curiosity was the first step that eventually led me to empathy. Empathy with people that I wasn't supposed to feel empathy with. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I became a journalist. And a journalist can't function without a measure of empathy or certainly strong curiosity. Curiosity is the foundation of the profession. And the kind of journalism that I chose to do uh, was uh, not news. I never wrote news, uh, but profiles of people. And when I moved to Israel in 1982 and I, I came into a society that was tearing itself apart. It was the beginning of the Lebanon War, really the, the beginning of the left-right schism as we, as we came to know it. It was born that summer, 1982. And that's the Israel that I moved into. And I faced a, a choice which any new immigrant faces, and you know this, Barak. It's, it's, you come into a divided society and which part you have of to Israel pick your you, camp? You have to pick your camp exactly, right? And so the people that I made aliyah with, friends of mine around that same time, who entered into a deeply divided Israel, had to choose. So some went to settlements, some went to Tel Aviv, and they chose. 
And I made a different choice. I chose not to choose. I chose, I, I decided that I'm joining the Jewish people in its experiment in reconstituting itself as a nation. And before I join a camp, I really want to understand what all the different camps think. Now, because I was working as a journalist in those years, the profession lent itself to going around from, from, from Israel to Israel, and there are multiple Israels, to go from Arab Israel to Haredi Israel to Settlement Israel to Peace Now Israel and to listen. And the way that I chose to do that as a journalist was to write profiles of people. I would go into, you know, I would look for interesting stories, uh, of, and, and, you know, as we say here, lo chaser. There's no endless, lack. Endless, endless. Everybody on the street is a story and everyone is a contradiction and everyone. Uh, so I, I was interested in learning not what your politics are, but what your life is that led you to your political or religious or whatever cultural uh, affiliation you, you had. And, and so that's the kind of journalism that I practiced. And it was a, it was a journalism of curiosity that eventually led to empathy because I would write about these characters and I would fall in love with these characters. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that from, from your own work. And that's what you do. If you're really going to open yourself as a writer, you, you're, you're going to go places that are dangerous, that are outside of your, of your safety zone, of what you believe. And, uh, and so I found myself empathizing with people whose politics I, I hated and empathizing with people whose religious or cultural lives are totally different from mine. It was a very different kind of journalism. It limited me in a certain way. You know, it meant that, you know, I, I, I had a very narrow niche writing profiles of Israelis in English. I wrote for, for Moment magazine. I wrote, I, I would do some work for the Village Voice in, in the early years. And then the Jerusalem Report became my home because it was a kind of a feature magazine. And I, so and there, there to, they called you yesterday's man. Yes, they did. They did because I opposed. In the Oslo process, after initially supporting it, uh, I very quickly came to the conclusion that it's it's a delusion. And there's what do you think about it now? Well, I think it was a a, a lethal delusion. Lethal. <laughs> I mean, we know that we saw the facts on the ground. Yeah, and um, you know, I have friends. I have friends on the left who say that we needed the breakthrough, and I agree that we needed a breakthrough. But did we need to bring Yasser Arafat here from Tunis? I see we're going to be going like all over the map here in this conversation. That's great. Why That's not? great. I'm, I'm with you. You stream, are all over the map. I am. I am. So stream of consciousness. Yeah. Yeah. Don't worry. I'll keep bringing you back. <laughs> okay. So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that Oslo is one of the, the biggest mistakes in the history of the state. I think, I think there are two major mistakes that we made. Before you say that, when did you think Oslo was the biggest mistake? When did you feel that was the your understanding of it? Oh, very early on. Ah, you know, okay. Uh, when the terrorism started, and, and and it was increasingly clear that Arafat was winking at the terrorism. I voted for Netanyahu in 1996. I never voted you know. for Netanyahu. So, no? I was a big left-winger when really? I left here. 
Ah, so it was Yasser Arafat that made me a right winger. Ah, okay. So, I'm like a reluctant right winger. Well, this is the Israeli public, you know. Yeah. I mean, look, I voted for Rabin in '92, and I, if he had not been assassinated and was running again, I would not have voted for him. I voted for Netanyahu. I went back in '99 to Barack, but I always do that. You know, I'm always kind of voting against myself in each in each election. What were the two reasons so, you wanted to mention? Well, the two big mistakes that we made uh, were mirror images of each other. The first was opening the gates to unlimited settlement all over the map, uh, rather than confining it the way the Labor Party tried to do in the early years after the Six-Day War. Uh, and the second big mistake, fatal, near-fatal mistake, was, uh, was Oslo. And so the result is that we took Judea and Samaria and we turned it into a bone in our throat that's stuck there. We can't, we can't spit it out and we can't swallow it. Uh, we can't, we can't annex because of Oslo. We brought in the Palestinian Authority, but we can't create a Palestinian state because of the settlements. There are other reasons, but, but I'm just saying that that dynamic that we've created on the ground We've created a situation where we stalemated ourselves, where we contradicted ourselves. You know, we, we, we let the right have a go, then we let the left have a go. But that's your voting pattern. That is my voting pattern. You're right. You're right. And you're not alone. You're right. So it's the whole nation doing that yeah. back and forth, back yeah. and forth. Because we, we were and are in an impossible situation and we don't know what to do. That's called the status quo, but it's what it really is, is we're stalemated against I'm still made it against myself. And there's an extra level to it that the Zionist attitude is that if you will it, it can come come about. That's exactly By right. Making things happen. Exactly right. Exactly right. The left and the right share the same mentality, which is whatever the Palestinians or the Arab world thinks doesn't matter. We have to decide. And so if we decide that we're going to create facts on the ground and transform the territories, of course, sooner or later, the Arab world will accept the inevitable. That's the right-wing position. The left-wing position is exactly the same. All we have to do is decide that we want peace, and there'll be peace. We have to decide how much we're going to give up. Ah, the other side might not be ready for peace. The other side might not recognize your legitimacy, your existence. Doesn't matter. If we're ready, then uh, I remember, you know, uh, if we're already doing stream of consciousness. Go ahead. Erev uh, Camp David, really the eve of, of, of the Camp David summit in uh, July 2000, I ran into a friend of mine, a, a, na- a neighbor of mine who was a journalist uh, at Haaretz. And uh, big smile. I say, what's the smile? He said, Hakol Tafur. Everything is, it's already a done deal. So what do you mean? He said, Barak is going to Camp David. And it's going to put the offer on the table. Two states uprooting dozens of settlements. You won't believe the list of settlements that he's ready to uproot. And he's actually going to redivide Jerusalem. Lo Yuman. Un- unbelievable. And my friend was just saying, well, of course, if Barak is going to put that deal on the table, obviously the Palestinians will accept it because that's the deal. Why is that? How do we know that's the deal? Because we told ourselves 
that that's the deal. As we told ourselves. Yes. We said they're going to accept it. If, if we're ready to give them 1967, they'll give us 1948, right? They will accept the fact that Israel exists. They won't try to undermine it through massive repatriation of the descendants of refugees. Done deal. Lo and behold, Barack puts the offer on the table. My friend was right. He put the offer on the table. And lo and behold, Arafat rejects the deal because it turns out that the Israeli left was speaking to itself, just as the Israeli right is speaking to itself. The Israeli right at least says it's speaking to itself, <laughs> doesn't make any pretenses. But the Israeli left was doing exactly what the Israeli right did, speak, negotiating with ourselves. Okay, we'll give up. We'll give up the settlements. We'll redivide Jerusalem, 67 borders. And of course, if we do that, they're not going to insist on right of return to the state of Israel because that's not logical. That would mean the destruction of a Jewish state. Obviously, they would realize we couldn't accept it. Well, not so obvious. And so uh, I agreed with your friend. Right. I was in the same view as your friend in 2000. By then, I'd given up. Long, I, I long have not given, given up. up even, and I saw bus bombings in front of my eyes. One of them was right in front of my office building in Binyan Klal. One of them, I was sitting on a bus in the front seat, and I saw the bus in front of me be blown up. That was one with Yona, with oh. Yona on it. Wow, wow, wow. It was in my Opan class. And you saw the bus? I was sitting there looking at the stoplight, and I saw the bus blow up. Did it have any impact on your bus? No. The driver right. just calmly turned to the left and brought us to the university as if nothing happened. Amazing, amazing. And even still, I, was, I wasn't willing to give up on the Palestinians. Yeah. I really believed in them. I believed in them. Well, I've... And I was a fool. You know, I've given up on the Palestinian leadership, but I haven't given up on the Palestinians. I can't. But they're not strong they're, enough to take over leadership. I know, I know. And I don't think that there's any chance of a negotiated settlement between the Palestinian and Israeli leadership. But there might be a possibility of bringing in the region, you bring in the Arab world or a large part of the Arab world, which now sees Israel as a strategic ally. This is a very significant moment. The question is, can we translate a, a relationship of strategic expedience into a genuine political relationship? that can impact on negotiations with the Palestinians. And uh, I don't know. You know, there's a question of whether the Palestinian leadership really even wants a two-state solution. Does it want a truncated state on the West Bank and Gaza with a, with a road going, going through Let's Israel? Let's look at it from a Palestinian point of view. I'm a Palestinian. No way. Why would I ever agree to that? Well... You would agree to it because it might mean uh, extricating you from uh, an impossible situation where you feel more and more constricted. Your movements are constricted, your your horizons, your so possibilities. So I'll give up my national dream so that I cannot be so constricted. Well, so the question is, will you, will you accept the partial fulfillment of your national dream? Will you be, will you be Ben-Gurion instead of Menachem Begin in 1948? You know, that's the question. The the sense I have from the Palestinians is absolutely not. Yes, yes. You know, there are those, and uh, we don't know how many. That's that's a question. The ones that meet you. I suspect that, that we're talking about a minority of Palestinians who really are genuinely ready 
to give up the dream of greater Palestine. But uh, that's the only possible deal in town. And I don't know that it will, of course, I don't know if it'll happen. Are they the Gidon Levies of the Palestinians? It's a great, it's a great question. It's a great question. Certainly the people who are interacting with me, um, they may well be. But, um, what I tried to do in my book, we're going to talk about my book now. Talk about everything. <laughs> um, what I tried to do in my, my latest book, which is Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, is to model a conversation. Right. And it's not to make peace. I'm From just, your point of view. Yeah. I'm just, you know, I'm just a writer. I'm not a political leader. No, you're more than a writer. You're a thinker. You're a thought leader, and especially in that field. But all I can do is, is model what, 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 present it. And so, yeah. And, and to try to create a language for peace that I can live with as someone who is a centrist, an Israeli centrist. And, uh, and to hopefully find partners on the other side who are ready to model that conversation with me. And I have found partners. Yeah, I'm sure that you, you know? have. And, uh, the, the, Next edition of letters, the paperback edition, which is due out, God willing, in June, uh, will have a new epilogue, letters from Palestinians to their Israeli neighbor. Mm -hmm. And there you'll see uh, 50 pages, the last 50 pages of the book, uh, will be their letters. And they will, they will have the final word in the book. And, uh, and so you will then go from an Israeli narrative to variations of a Palestinian narrative. Some of those letters attack me quite fiercely, call me mm. a propagandist. Mm. And, and that's okay. That's, you know, from, from, from their point of view, that's, that's what it looks like. And it was important for me to put those letters in, including the really negative letters, because even the negative letters were willing to acknowledge a, an indigenous Jewish presence here. And that's all I'm looking for at this point with Palestinians. Are you ready to accept the fact that I am not a colonialist, but a native people here? Re-indigenized re is the term that you've used. Re-indigenized. Now, you can then turn around and say, yeah, but you're behaving like a colonialist. I'm ready to argue that. That's, that's a position. Okay, fair. You can, that's, if that's your perception, as long as you as a Palestinian are ready to come to terms, no matter how difficult, with my re-indigenousness here. Right, because people say to you, Yossi, you've got a Brooklyn accent. Mm -hmm. What's your connection right. to the land of Israel? That's right. And and I, I heard that term from you, that we are re-indigenized people yeah. and we're in the process of re-indigenizing ourselves. And you see it yeah. even with my children. My wife is totally Sephardi, Turkish and Iraqi. Mm. I'm totally Ashkenazi. And our children are centrists. Right, 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 exactly. <laughs> they, they are the indigenized Israeli, yeah. essentially, bringing together the Jewish world in the land of Israel. That's the power of what's happened here, is, is in, in, in exactly the family that you model, which is that the, the, the truly amazing, the most amazing thing we've done here is create your family. Because uh, what we've done is reconstruct the Jewish people. We've gone from being communities, which is our condition in diaspora, 
to being a nation. And that could only have happened here and through this crazy process. And in Hebrew. And absolutely. Which is the most amazing thing. Absolutely. More than the state of Israel, I think the Hebrew language being revived as a modern language yeah. is the most incredible thing. Yeah. Spoken by Jews from Iraq, Turkey, and America. And these days you have Israelis that don't know any other language. Yeah. I remember when I first moved here 25 years ago, everybody knew some English. Mm -hmm. Now I run into Israelis sometimes that don't know anything. Yeah. Which I think is an amazing, wonderful thing. That Hebrew is so strong. You so can, here we have our first disagreement. You can live an entire life. Well, I say from a night and just an idea point of view, not a practical point of view. You can live an entire life in the Hebrew language and the land of Israel and not feel like you're lacking. So my disagreement with you is more, um, philosophical, I would say, in that what, who are the Jews and what is our Mahut, really. What is our essence? And for me, it is the struggle between the, the tribal identity and the universal identity. And to only be speaking the language of our tribe is to limit our interaction with, with the world. And I think we need to be we're going back to the idea of border. I mean, where, where I position myself very firmly is at the, precise meeting point between the tribal and the universal. And I think that that that, that is where the Jewish people was meant to be. So the tribal, I understand. You're a Jew, Borough Park, or Jerusalem, whatever it is. You're in your community mm -hmm. with your language, and you don't go beyond that. But how how is being like this Israeli Jew that only speaks Hebrew, how are they supposed to be universal? Well, this is, you know, we're, when you look at the, um, the creation of the Jewish people, God tells Abraham, leave your father's home, leave your homeland. It's the most definitive expression of tribalism possible. God is not only telling Abraham to leave your homeland, leave your father's home, cut yourself off from that idolater. You are going, you're starting a new nation. It is the, the ultimate expression of tribalism. On the one hand. On the other hand, a little bit further down, what is God telling Avram? Why am I separating you? Why am I separating you? Why am I separating you from the, oh, from, from, the your, from the from, nations? Why am I making you're, it? You're my chosen. For what, for what purpose? What are the Jewish people chosen? <laughs> And all the families ah. of the, of the earth will be blessed through you. It's right there. Now, so now on the other hand, that's the most universal expression. Belgians don't wake up in the morning thinking, wait a minute, what's my purpose? What, what am I supposed to, am I supposed to be a blessing for the nations? Uh -huh. We are formed to be a blessing for the nations. So that built in to our identity, is on the one hand an abrupt rupturing of our relationship with the with a physical not repudiate your father, and on the other hand, I'm doing this so that you're going to be a blessing for the nations. That's the you paradox. Said the nations will be blessed through you. Yes, not that you'll be a blessing for the nations. One is passive. One is active. Ah, okay. So now we can start getting into. I'm just uh, curious. You know, I'm not even arguing with no, you. No, I mean, curious. look, I, you know, I mean, that's an interesting. It's an interesting. 
point, because up to a point. If somebody's going to be blessed through you, then you have to be who you're supposed to be in order to be the vehicle for the blessing. Yes. But if you send yourself out into the world, you lose your identity, and then nothing's happening. You're just disappearing. That's right. And that's our struggle. That's always our struggle. And if you look at Jewish history, every so often, we're tempted. You know, it goes back to the the story, the Hanukkah story. What's the Hanukkah story? Along comes this very sophisticated culture, philosophy. It's 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 a profound culture that the Rambam, you know, millennia later brings into Judaism. Right? I mean, it's, it's how does he bring into Judaism? Well, I mean, he comes to terms. He's he's he comes. With, with, he comes to with, terms with everything. Yeah, okay. But it's it's like it's not beyond the pale. The Rambam's a great example of coming to terms, as you say, with everything. He does. That, so, was, that yeah. was his whole purpose. Okay. Like philosophically, he did. Yes. Come to terms with everything. So every so often something comes along, some very po- – Christianity, Marxism, and many Jews are saying, ah, oh, wait a minute. This is the universal blessing. Why should I continue to be maintaining my separate – tribalistic identity, this is the moment that we've been waiting for. And it turns out that no, you know, we're we're still waiting. We're still so waiting. along those lines, Marxism, Tikkun Olam. Yes. Tikkun yes. Olam is this universal view, and some Jews have also said that this is Judaism, and taking it to the point where they lost their Jewish identity to embrace this total universalism. So I have my critique of Tikkun Olam, and it's not that different from yours, uh, up until a point. And, and up until the point is that I, in some ways, I am a Chabadnik in that I believe that this, well, I'll put it on I a see fl- the Tilat Hashem over here. Very much, of course. And, uh, and at home, I have a whole shelf of, of, of all about the Rebbe and the Rebbe's really? Torah, of course, of course. Did you meet the Rebbe? Well, I was at a Fabrengen, but I didn't okay, personally something. meet him. No, I had a meeting with the Rebbe when really? I was seventeen. That's wow. how I ended up with this beard. No kidding. He told you to grow it. No, he didn't say anything. I didn't even know who he was. What did he tell you? I don't remember. I came from <laughs> total reform world. You, you to went being, to get a dollar. I don't even know how I ended up there. Did you? Were you online for a dollar? I'm assuming. You don't know. It was a it was a life changing experience. Hmm. I shook his hand. I felt like he saw everything that I had been in my life, everything that I would be, mm-hmm. all in a second, and I was speechless. Wow. And I came back to the Reform Temple, and I tried to find answers there, and ended up in the Chabad house. So that's very powerful. Um, I, I find myself somewhere between the Chabad house and the Reform Temple, or I find myself simultaneously in both, I would say. You know, in a sense, I do as well. Just not wanting to be in the Reformed Temple, but being drawn to Reformed Jews. Mm. I'm really drawn toward them. Mm. My home is a Chabad house. Right. But I'm so drawn to American Reformed Jews. That's what I love also about this place, mm. the Hardman and Sue. I keep mm. coming back here. Wow. Because I really feel yeah. a draw. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I feel, I feel, certainly feel a draw toward Jews in wherever the, almost without, ex- there are a couple of exceptions. Yeah. But, I want to ask yeah. you about that. Who are the Jews who I don't feel at home with? Um, we could say that, but I want to ask you about Kahana. I want to ask you about the Haredim. Yeah, yeah. I would, for me, my red lines are very low in terms of Jews that I am ready to daven with, Jews that I'm ready 
to associate with. It's very, very broad, but there are red lines. Uh, one red line is Nature Carta. When Nature Carta, not because they're anti-Zionist, I, I'm, I'm, I would daven with Satmar, who are no less anti-Zionist, right. but Satmar would not go to Iran and, uh, and right. go to a Holocaust denial conference, and Nature Carta did. So, uh, Nature Carta, uh, the Nature Carta shul is off of my list. Uh, I will not, I would not participate in a minion I, of Nature Carta. And uh, that's the first. Uh, I would not participate in a minion of of Kahanists, uh, people who celebrate uh, murder of innocent people. So let's talk about that for a second. Somebody once came to my Shabbos table, probably in 2005, and said, Kahana, Kahana, Kahana. And I, I didn't know anything about Kahana. Mm-hmm. And I said, don't even mention that name at my table. He's an extremist. I don't want to hear it. And this guy said to me, what do you know about Kahana? I said, I don't know anything. Mm-hmm. He said, good. Get on the internet and watch some videos and tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. So I started watching and I was blown away. This guy <laughs> was unbelievable. He spoke like nev- nobody mm-hmm. I'd ever heard before. He took on everyone. And then I started reading some of his books. Mm-hmm. And so he's not a great writer. That much I can tell you. But I'm just fascinated by this guy. So I watched everything I could find with him. That's all I know from Kahana. I'm not a Kahanist. Kahana is one of the great tragedies because he had potential to be a real leader. And instead, he went for the lowest common denominator for inflaming the Yetzirah, the, the evil inclination. Um, he, um, he didn't only advocate violence, he celebrated violence. He loved violence. He spoke about love of the Jewish people more than any Jewish leader that I ever heard before or since. Uh, and he hated more Jews than anybody I ever knew. And he hated whole categories of Jews. They were Jews he believed deserved to die and because they disagreed with him, because they were in the wrong camp. And so Kahana, to my mind, um, was the embodiment of the wounds of the Jewish people. And he took those wounds and he turned them into not just an ideology, but a theology. Kahana was a theologian. I mean, I, I believe that Kahana founded a new denomination, not a new denomination in Judaism. It's a very small denomination, but it is a very distinct theology. And it's a theology with a whole messianic um, eschatology, a whole, a whole worldview, a, a messianism, a, a, a theology that, that, that looks at Judaism in a unique way, which For is that Judea- Judaism, the, the purpose of Judaism is to destroy evil. That's our purpose. It's to, it's Kiddush Hashem, to sanctify God's name by destroying evil. Amalek. Amalek. We, we say and that so, at the end of davening, okay. the six remembrances. Yes. So, but the question is, first of all, who defines what Amalek is? Right. Uh, that's first of all, and secondly, um, to put to create this kind of cosmic drama is a um, is something interesting that he there did. There is no cosmic that drama. He did. Of course, there's a cosmic drama, but is it is it that the purpose of the Jewish people is to is to is to imp- is to seek vengeance 
against all those nations that Kahana identifies as Amalek who harmed us. And, and we, we, we will sanctify God's name, Mekadesh Shem Shamaim. How? By destroying those nations. By, that's how we'll show God's greatness through vengeance against the nations. And, and El, El Nikamot Hashem, God, the God of vengeance is the God of, of Kahanism. And that's the, that's the aspect of God that overrides all other aspects. Ah, I see. Vengeance. But it's not just vengeance as an emotional response. It's vengeance as a theological principle. This is the, the chidush here, the innovation of Kahanism. And do it's, you think most Kahanists understand this? I have friends that call themselves Kahanists. I don't no, think they really know look, this at all. No, look, most Kahan, you know, many Kahanists don't understand anything. You know, there, there are Kahanists who are- They just swept up with the yes. excitement of it. Okay, but there also are people who I'd say, yeah, yeah, understand this, definitely. There is a theology, and uh, it's in his later books, you know, and that's, uh, there's a, there's a theological madness that has, that has, that took him over. And he had a kind of a nervous breakdown. Yeah, I, I felt that when you, when you watch his videos on YouTube, you can see how the later videos, Absolutely. he just lost it. He lost it. He lost it. He's expressions of hatred in his face. Calling Arabs dogs. I mean, this is. He lost his patience, yeah. yeah. I know. He was, he was really a, a, um, a tragic figure. And the Kahanas today, you feel like they're continuing his oh, legacy? Absolutely. They're not absolutely. him, though. Absolutely. They're, no, they're a little smoother, some of them. You know. Are they as passionate as he, is, as he was? Oh, I think so. I think so. But in a way, they have, it's a cold, calculated passion. Mm-hmm. But I think that they're, they're, Commitments, and I think the, I think the leaders of Otsmayu did understand exactly what I just said. That's interesting. Oh, you could be right. I'm guessing you're right. I'm guessing. Okay. <laughs> um, so we made a big circle. Um, I want to get to some things. I don't want to skip this. Okay. About your morning routine that I understood. You sit on your porch, put on tefillin, and meditate, but you don't have them with a minion. Yeah, yeah. And my question because is because in my neighborhood there's only Naturi Karta. Uh, no, so. I studied at the Hebrew <laughs> University for six years. I know your neighborhood. Yeah, yeah. There's the Ashkenazi and Sephardi shuls. They're together there in the are, same building. There there's are. the conservative shul. There are, there are. With the spiral staircase very, inside. I have a very particular routine. And uh, do you get your tefillin checked? Is that an important thing for you? That's really the question. So tefillin are important to you because you put them on and you take them seriously. A minion is not important. And what about the halacha of the tefillin? Is that something that is important to you? Barak, that's, that's not an interesting question for me. You know why? Because it's, it's Nudnik Judaism. <laughs> and it's not an interesting question. I came across that because, in this book. Yes, yes. Nudnik yes, Judaism. Yes, yes. But there's a point to this question. The, the question is... How does one maintain a Jewish identity that can be transferred to future generations without being committed to halacha? Well, it's a question that we can ask, I don't know, 80% of the Jewish people today, 70%, 90%. That's the whatever. 70% that's assimilating and intermarrying. And Not in Israel. You know. No, in Israel, they're stuck in the, in the fishbowl. So, you know, it's, it's, 
I think that that the question there's a there's there's a question that one needs to ask before you start asking those questions. Okay, and that is, can halacha continue to perform the role that it performed for two thousand years, which was to give Jews a shared language? And my answer is very simply by looking around the Jewish world and and Israel. The answer is no. And I ask myself, why? What happened? You can say modernity, assimilation, that will be the orthodox response. And I think that there is a, um, a better reason for that. And that is that we have entered, to use the language, the concept of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who had a formative influence on me when I was uh, beginning to really think seriously about these questions. I came across an, a, an essay of his called The Third Era of Jewish History. And according to Yitz Greenberg, uh, the first era was the biblical. I think that's straightforward. The second era was the rabbinic. I think that's also straightforward. What's less straightforward, more controversial in the Jewish world today, is that we are now in the third era. The third era began with the Holocaust and the creation of Israel. And as soon as I read that, I felt, aha, uh-huh. Yitz Greenberg has just given me a conceptual framework for understanding the inconsistencies of my life. Because until then, I thought I was just thrashing about, that I was kind of an anarchic personality. I, 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 I was never orthodox anything in any aspect of my life. And so my religion wouldn't be orthodox either. But when I, when I read Yitz Greenberg, I said, ah, what I'm really struggling with, what my life is really about, is how do you live as a Jew, as a serious Jew, in an era of transition, in a transition from the second era to the third era? And I knew as soon as I read that, that I was a third era Jew, and that my whole life was about trying to figure out what does it mean to live after the great Jewish dreams and nightmares have been fulfilled or partly fulfilled. And that's, we are the generation that lives after some of the greatest Jewish dreams and nightmares actually happened. And what do you do with that? We haven't begun to unpack it. We, and the no, reason. It'll take, it'll take it'll, much longer than our lifetime. It will. To, it will. Like, but I'll quote something else from Yitz Greenberg that I heard not long ago. He said, Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. I have a question for you, though, so just All right. don't go too long. Okay, now this is short. The exodus from Egypt produced the Tanakh, the Bible, the Torah. The Chorban, the destruction of the Temple, produced the Talmud. In the 20th century, we experienced Chorban, destruction, and exodus almost simultaneously. What is Judaism supposed to look like? after that. And that's the question that we need to put on the table. Okay. I see it differently than you, obviously. But going back to... That's why when you ask me, do you check your tefillin and how often do you check it and whether it's important for you to check, my response to you is that's a second era question. Third, you're in your third era. Now, I don't... Now, now, in the third era, the question for the third era is how much of, in the same way, what was the question of the second era? How much of the first era do we bring, do we bring with us? So you had the Tzdukim, the Sadducees, 
who were trying to fight the Pharisees. The Pharisees were Chazal, the rabbis, who were trying to create the second era. And the, and the Tzedukim were saying, no, what are you talking about? You're betraying Judaism. What's Judaism? First era Judaism. The Tzedukim of today, the Sadducees of today, for me, are the Haredim. They're the ones who are saying, you can't change, you can't change an iota from the second, the second era. And my response is, you know, maybe in the third era, we're going to live pretty much like the second era. Maybe, maybe that's, but that's not the question. The question is, what is your state of mind? What is your consciousness? Is your consciousness second era or third era? So if you, if you're coming from a consciousness of a second era, your question is completely in its place. Do you do this? Do you do that? I Don't didn't mean it that? as a criticism. By no, I'm, I'm not saying that you do. Okay. You're trying to understand what my practice is. Yeah. I understand. Yeah. But I'm saying that that's a second era question. Right. The third era is, okay, I can be a fully halachic Jew. I can live my life personally as if I were still in the second era. But my, my, my thinking, the way I relate to the, to the rest of the Jewish people that is not second era observant, the way that I relate to the rest of the world, the way that I regard the state of Israel, those are all third era. I was thinking the other day that Chabad, Chabad is as far as the ultra orthodox community can go from the second era to the third era. And, and, and Chabad in a certain way is third era. It's one of the reasons the other Haredim don't like Chabad. They reject them. They reject Chabad because yeah. Chabad is saying, wait a minute, something's changed here. We can't just be se segregated. And the truth is Chabad also has a relationship with the non-Jewish world. The Rebbe had a relationship with, right. with the non-Jewish world. And that's third era. Now, uh, can I, can I just take a few more minutes of your patience here? I want to play something out for you. Okay, good. Something I'm, I'm working on, which is the different denominations and how they relate to Judaism. Imagine Judaism as an attic. And the attic is full of furniture that we've inherited over thousands of years. Some of it is precious antiques. Much of it is precious antiques. Some of it, malasot. What, what are you going to do? do? is broken beyond repair. Some of it can be fixed. And what I'm about to say is a gross, unfair generalization to all the denominations. The reform come along, look at the attic, and say, bring the moving truck, get rid of this junk. The conservatives come along and say, wait a minute, reform. It's not all junk. There are some beautiful things here. There's antiques. But they don't, know how to distinguish what's precious from what's not, and they end up throwing out things that are precious and saving things for sentimental value, ethnicity, whatever it is. The modern Orthodox come along and say, no, you can't throw anything away, but under certain circumstances with very careful supervision, you're permitted to fix some of the things that are broken. And all they ought, all, all opinions in, in the modern Orthodox world agree that under all circumstances, and we're very make on this, we're very, we're very 
generous and, and loose on this. Everyone agrees you can dust the furniture. The Haredim come along and say, the dust? What are you out of your minds? The dust that our parents and grandparents touched? The dust is the most precious part of the whole thing. That's the attic of Judaism. Now, okay. I know I'm being totally no, I think that's a great analogy, honestly. <laughs> so. I, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But coming back to halacha, which was the whole point of me asking you about the tefillin, and it's really, I'm a father, and I told you I have these children, the Ayanara, and I'm constantly trying to think, how do I keep my kids connected to Judaism? I see it as Hashem gave me these children, and it's my responsibility to raise them as Jews with a strong Jewish identity, with a Jewish ed- education. What they do beyond that is already going to be their responsibility. Right. I'm right. going to fulfill mine. And I don't see halacha as a common language. I see halacha as the guidebook. Mm-hmm. Here's how you re- remain a Jew. Mm-hmm. You keep Shabbos. You keep kosher. You put on tefillin. You keep these holidays. You learn and you be connected, and then I went one step beyond by becoming a chassid. So as a chassid, you're connected to a rebbe, and you're connected connected to a chassidic philosophy, for brengens and, mm-hmm. and joy, hopefully, serving Hashem v'simcha. That, that is the way to transmit Judaism to the next generation. And I feel like so many people are looking for other answers. Mm-hmm. How can we do it? Forget about that. What other ways can we do it? Other ways aren't working. They didn't work, they don't work, this and they're not working. This is part of the problem of moving into a new era. And a new era is not just a demarcation in time. It's a total conceptual transformation. What does it mean? How do we do this? Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm groping like, like everyone else who is in third era mode. And, uh, and I appreciate your, your, your point. And to a certain extent, I think you're right because the third era has not yet established strong vessels for, for, for transmitting. You probably know the analogy of the guy who's walking down the road gets to a fork in the road and the sign with all the directions fell down. Mm-hmm. How does he figure out? Does he go left? Does he go right or left? He puts it with the sign pointing from where he came from, and that'll show him where he needs to go. So that, that brings us back to, to what we were talking about earlier, which is the question is how much of the second era do you need to carry into the third era? Is everybody being drawn into the third era even against their will, or is it a conscious decision that I'm in the third era? Oh, it's a very good question. Look, I think we're all in the third era. We're all dealing with a, with a third era reality, some are are more ready to take it up than others. Chabad stepped forward. And what did the Rebbe do? The Rebbe said, basically, that the Jewish people is 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 in an existential crisis after the Shoah. And somebody has to take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of the Jewish people. Somebody has to become the leader, the spiritual leader of the Jewish people. He stepped up and he did it. That's an amazing, amazing moment in Jewish history. But he did it in a way that had never quite been done before. And he did it in a, in, in a kind of a third era way. So what did he do? He set up a, 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 a studio, right? A TV studio and satellite. Now that wasn't just 
technical. There was also, as because maybe initially it was intended to only be technical, but as soon as you start moving into a relationship with the means of, of modernity, you're going to be dealing with the mindset of modernity. You're going to be sending your shluchim out there, your emissaries, in, you know, to deal with, with non-Jews, with Jews who might as well be non-Jews. And it doesn't, you know, and, and it's, it's not a question of, oh, are, are, are your emissaries still observing halacha? Yes, you're still observing halacha, but you're already in situations that, that, that are not classical orthodox. For sure. I mean, look, look, I was in a, uh, a, a, um, in a, a Chabad run Jewish community center somewhere in the U.S. I won't mention where. I don't want to get the rabbi in trouble, but he was hosting a, um, a Shabbaton. And some of the people of young people, and some of them wanted to have an egalitarian service. And he said, okay, here's the space. In, it was a, a Chabad community center. And that was extraordinary to me. Would any Orthodox group do that? Would modern Orthodox groups ah, so do that? First of all, I know where the rabbi is coming from. First of all, you have to understand, what's the shaliach's ultimate goal is to bring you closer. And the only way that I can bring you closer is by accepting you. Now, there's a limit, right? There, okay. There, there is a red line. But this to, was an egalitarian service. It was it was an egalitarian service on the side. It wasn't in the main shul. No, it was on the side. All true. And it was in order for people to feel comfortable so they would come again and come again. So you, yes, you're right. You're right. It's 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 like but this, it's coming it's from like, a different place. It's not yes, him embracing you're egalitarian. Right. You're right. It's it's like setting up the studio, right? But but what your initial intention is suddenly bringing you into situations that you never imagined you would you would you would you would you would endorse, you would allow under your roof. So if you said to him, "Can we have a permanent egalitarian minion in the main shul?" He would say no. Right. Because he knows, right. and my point is right. that he knows who he is as a Jew. He has his guidebook, which is the Shulchan Aruch, and especially the Shulchan Aruch of the Alter Rebbe. He says, this is what I follow, but what is my goal? My goal is to embrace every Jew. Okay. So the question for Chabad is, am I going to create Chabadniks? No, they, they gave up on that. That was not. Although it happens was, a lot. Okay. It happens. Yeah. yeah. Uh, is my goal then to create Orthodox Jews? Yes, that's my goal. I don't what, think that's their goal. What happens if it, ah, what happens if, it, I'm saying the evolution of their thinking. I'm trying okay. to imagine what it was in the 40s and 50s, and but that's the point. It evolved. That's not their goal today. Their goal today is get Jews to do more Judaism. Because mitzvah, correct mitzvah. mitzvah. One okay. mitzvah leads to another. Yes, great. Hmm? But that's that it. That's puts, the whole philosophy behind Chabad. But this is the third era thinking and acting. That you define bidyevid. Because from the beginning, they didn't see themselves as a third era not. thinking. Absolutely not. Of course they did. Okay. Within but they the, are that Chabad definition. today. Chabad is its own denomination. You see, I honestly, I agree with you, by the way. They, they call themselves the Jews of Judaism. And I, I see Chabad as really the answer 
to how do you maintain a Jewish identity? It is an answer. Yeah, I'm not saying the answer. You did. Okay, so that was a mistake. <laughs> that was a mistake. An answer that works. Right, right. Now, I know a lot of shluchim because I lead the davening in Mayanot, which is officially a Chabad shul. It's a Karlbach shul, so hundreds of people come, and all the shluchim come through. They come mm. through with groups. So I've met shluchim from all over the world. My brother, I have one brother, when he came about Shuva, and he's a Misnagid, so he's not a chazid like me. But whenever he, went, whenever he goes to a Chabad house, they say to him, you look like the guy from Ayanot. <laughs> I said, yeah, that's my brother. That's my brother. <laughs> so I got to meet them, and I got to meet their kids, and I got to meet their grandkids, and many times I host them at my Shabbos table. And I also have seen many of these Chabad kids that went too far away, and they stopped being religious. Mm-hmm. They, it's a, it's a growing phenomenon. Yeah. And, and the Chabad Shluchim are very concerned. How do they keep their kids connected? It's, it's putting yourself as a, making yourself a Shaliyah is a real self-sacrifice. Yeah. It is. And it is. But it's also the, the dynamics that we're seeing in Chabad families are third era. Third era again. Absolutely. Absolutely third era because that's the price that they're paying for going for, for, for playing by the rules of the third era, and they're still willing to to risk that. Yeah, because they have total faith in the Rebbe. Now, one of the things that I see again and again is these kids that go so far off the derech, off the path, they come back eventually. Some. Not all, yeah. But I see them when they come back. And they're still willing to be totally liberal and as that's, far off, but they wear a kapata. As far as I'm concerned as a third era Jew, that's great. Mike Batli, what, what do I care? Oh, I'm not saying you it know. is a criticism. No, this is. I'm saying I, that, no, that I think it's great. That is a solution. I think it's great. Yeah, of course. And uh, we are going to need multiple strategies. I really want to know about American Jews that see themselves as not being in the diaspora anymore. That that's their home. Well, I would make a distinction between. Seeing yourselves at home and seeing yourselves in the diaspora. Or put it another way, a distinction between exile and diaspora. Exile, the exile, the 2000-year galut, ended at a very specific moment. And it wasn't 1948. It ended in 1989. It ended in 1989, which was the moment that the Iron Curtain fell. Hmm. And that Jews were able to decide all over the world now, you didn't have a community of Jews that could not freely choose to stay where they were. And the condition of exile means that you are denied the choice of whether to move to Israel or to stay where you You're are. You're being forced to stay where you are. The condition of exile is coercion. Diaspora, tfutzot, as opposed to galut, spread around, spread around, and it is a condition of voluntary separation from the land of Israel. Is it voluntary exile? I would no. You see, I would not call it exile. I think that that when Jews are accepted in their host countries and they are given full rights, they are they are accepted. They're not under threat. That's not exile. Are Jews in Europe today in exile? I think so. 
Why they're forced to stay there? No, but they're under threat. It's, so it's a partial, it's a semi, it's what a I meant quasi by, exile. By self-imposed exile is my life in America is so comfortable, and Israel is such a foreign country to me. I can't move there. I don't see the decision to regard my life in America as a Jew as as being at home. I don't see that. For me, that's not a problem. Okay. I obviously made a different choice, but I am not ideologically committed to saying this is the only home. I believe that Israel is the center point of Jewish life, and that puts me at odds with all kinds of people, including some of my colleagues here at Hartman. Really? Yeah. I that's think that's even a question. Where's just, the center of for Jewish some life? people? For some people, some people today speak of two centers. I can't speak of two centers. Uh-huh. And for me, the center, the spiritual, political, uh, demographic, uh, cultural, all of those, uh, and most of all, where is the place where Jews from around the world are reconstituting themselves as, as an am, as a people? That's here. And re-indigenizing. And re-indigenizing. So, so for me, there's, it's not a conversation. It's but not a you're, question. You're not going to become a nation in America. No, but I'm not, I, 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 I don't judge or, or, or impose an ideological uh, veto on Jews seeing themselves at home in a society that fully accepts them. And I look at the American Jewish experiment with a great deal of interest and sometimes excitement. The fact that Jews are, uh, are living in a society that by and large not only, not only welcomes them as individuals, but welcomes them as a collective, is interested in knowing what, what does Judaism think about this? What do Jews, what, what is a Jewish political interest here? Jews are thoroughly integrated both as individuals and as a community. We've never experienced something like that before. We've had experiences where we were accepted as individuals up until a point, but America is really qualitatively different. So we are privileged to live at an unbelievable moment in Jewish history where we have these two experiments of diaspora at homeness and, and returning to our core home. But because I see this as my, as our core home doesn't mean that you, that the Jewish people can't have a secondary home. And of course I see it as a secondary home, but it's, it is home. Do I see the Jews in France as being at home? Or in England or in Belgium? Not really. Only in America? America, Canada, Australia. There are places in the, uh, in the, in the diaspora. Uh, funnily enough, uh, the Jews in Germany have a chance to be at home. And it hurts, it's, it's painful for me to say it, but you have the, the, the government, the official, official Germany goes so out of its way. That this is, there is no modern Germany without a Jewish presence. You'll hear that. Hmm. Merkel will say it. Also now, in France, they say that. They do say it now in France. They didn't say it, they didn't say it 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. They do say, or 10 years ago. They say it now. Might be too late. Now, do I really believe that Germany can be a home for the Jewish people? And it can be a, a diaspora home in the way that America is? No. No, of course not. How is America a home for Jewish people? It's a comfortable place for Jewish people. 
Did um, it's did, a non-threatening. Did place, you see Trump's home. State of the Nation talk? Yeah, I heard bits of it. Watch, go and watch it. Trump invited a survivor of the Pittsburgh massacre to be his guest at the State of the Union. The guy turns out to be an 82-year-old Holocaust survivor. Trump announces, Yankel Schwartz is here, and please, we're, we're so honored that you're here. He stands up. The place gives him a standing ovation just for being a survivor from Pittsburgh and a Holocaust survivor. So you have both houses of Congress and all the guests standing up and giving this 82-year-old Jew a standing ovation just for being there. Then Trump says, it's Yankel's birthday today. It's his 82nd birthday. <laughs> the whole place breaks out into singing happy birthday to him. Oh, really? Happy birthday. Then Trump says, says that Yankel was saved by the American army, which liberated his camp. Massive standing ovation. Three standing ovations in the middle of a presidential State of the Union for an 82-year-old Jew. Now, I would venture to say that that would never happen anywhere else and certainly never happened to the Jewish people in our places of wandering before. America is America still. Now, I say that as somebody who chose to leave America for many reasons. You're sitting across another one. You chose to leave America. I chose to leave I America. I also chose to leave America. Yes, so we left America. And so And it hasn't been easy, by the way. No, it's you know, it's never easy being an immigrant and being an and leaving America. Even if you're coming to Israel, it's still not easy. Although if you have to be an immigrant, I would say probably the easiest form of immigration is to go from America to Israel. That's interesting. You know, but um but that, you know, I, I, I did not leave America by slamming the door behind me. And most of my readers are in America. My, my public is there. You Your know. New York Times bestseller it's, it's, was in America. So it was all America, you know, and, and I, I actually didn't think that that would be the case when I moved here, but that's how it turned out. And so I, I have a great deal of love for America, a great deal of love for American Jewry, a great deal of anxiety for both America and American Jewry. But, you know, anxiety is 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 built There's into a, the experience. This is a quote from you, from our favorite newspaper. I worry about a passion for social justice becoming co-opted by far-left politics among future American Jewish leaders. Future rabbis are marginalizing themselves from the overwhelming majority of Israeli Jews. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. Uh, that, that quote was, um, from an article about a group of uh, liberal rabbinical students who are spending the year in Israel who went out to plant trees with Palestinians. And I said a lot more. It was a very long interview, but, uh, that's, that, those were the lines that, that they took. And, um, and I, you know, what I, what I said was, I'm not, concerned about them planting trees with Palestinians. I'm concerned if that is the expression of their, of their, po of their political relationship with Israel. And, uh, do they have a relationship with settlers? Do they, do they seek out other parts of Israeli society? 
And turns out that a large number of the people who were in that group uh, were in the audience of a group that I spoke to last week. And had he they had, read the article? Say it again. Did they read the oh, article? Oh, yeah, very much so. And uh, Hartman has a, uh, a program here for rabbinical students who are doing their year in Israel. And a lot of these young people were, were, were around the table. I'd been forewarned before coming in. And, uh, and so I ended up trying to explain to them why, as future leaders, spiritual leaders of American Jewry, what, why I'm worried because I want American Jewish input in the Israeli conversation up to a point. We're the ones who are going to decide security issues, life and death issues when we go to war, obviously. But I want the American Jewish voice as part of our mix. I want their voice in our heads. We need that. And I said to them, if you marginalize yourselves and just go with breaking the silence and the far left in Israel, which, which even most Israeli liberals don't regard as, as, as a legitimate part of our conversation, you will be writing yourself out of the discourse. And that's a tragedy. What was their response? People heard it. You know, it was a, we had a very good conversation. It was a really I, good I conversation. I wish I had been invited no, no, was, to that it was, one. It's actually a beautiful evening. You know, for me, I, I, I was very moved. And one young woman, um, was saying, you know, I wear, you know, she was wearing a kippah. She says, I'm, uh, I'm a reformed rabbinical student. I wear a kippah. And I have felt here overwhelming contempt on the street. People make fun of me. And she, and she broke down. And, and it was so painful to me. This is her expression of Judaism. Now, whether it's, whether it's mine or not mine is, is beside the point. As a third era Jew, for me, the basic, the basic framework is not halacha. It's the Jewish people. I, I spoke to, uh, I, I, it was interesting. I'm, the pre, my, the group I spoke to just before speaking to the liberal rabbinical students was a group from the Tikva Foundation, which is more to the right, uh, of 50 yeshiva kids, uh, in their gap, doing their gap year in Israel. So they were, they were, they had just finished yeshiva high school and they're here for the gap year. And I asked them, I said, tell me in one line or even one word, what is the essence of the Jewish people? What does it mean to be a Jew? Who, who are we? And there were all kinds of answers. Some of them were, were, were quite interesting. And I said, well, my definition, I said, the meaning, the essence of, of the Jewish people is the Jewish people. And then I spent the next two hours trying to explain that from a religious perspective, why I believe, and it's not a national identity. My primary Jewish identity is religious. But why do I then say it's not halacha as the, as the, as the, as the bottom line? It is the Jewish people. The essence of the Jewish people is the Jewish people. That can be a conversation for another time. Last question. What are you hopeful about? Well, um, I believe with full heart in the coming of the Messiah, in the, in the coming of redemption. I believe that we're living in extraordinary times. 
I believe uh, the Rebbe had some kind of intuitive insight about the potential for this time. I see the Third Era as a time of redemption for the Jewish people. It already is. We're already living in 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 in, in situations of redemption that 70 years ago, when my father uh, emerged from the Shoah in 1945, would have been inconceivable. That that you have you have a country, the most powerful country in the world, that fully accepts Jews not only individually but collectively embraces them, embraces them, and then you have a sovereign Jewish state, which is the most powerful expression of Jewish sovereignty we ever had in history by far. So we're already, you know, we 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 take for granted we're we're you know we're an ungrateful people. It goes back it goes back to to the desert, you know. We had, you know, we, 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 where, where are those onions that we had in Egypt? God, you know, Moses, and the gar- you know, the gar- where are those onions? <laughs> you know, sure. <laughs> you know, and like, like five minutes after we, 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 we see and hear God's presence, we're dancing around a golden calf. We're a difficult people. And so, yeah, 70 years after the establishment of this miracle, this Jewish state, uh, Oh yeah, Israel. You know, you know what a disappointment. You know, really, <laughs> what a it's disappointment. It's the onions in the desert. You know, yeah, really, it's exactly. So it's the voice of it's the voice of the desert that keeps recurring. So if you're asking me what I'm hopeful for, I mean, I'm already living in the hope. I'm already part of it. It's just I'm worried about this this deep Jewish pessimism and ingratitude. That that worries me. You know, and, and, and we could go to each of the Jewish communities, each of them, every one of them, and, and, and express, you know, we, and play out how this, this ingratitude and, and lack of appreciation for this moment is playing out. On the other hand, I see the trajectory of the Jewish people as being toward, toward, uh, toward redemption. And that fills me with, with excitement, with anticipation. Um, and, uh, and also anxiety because we know that the process never happens, doesn't happen easily, happens with trauma. And, uh, there's no guarantee that, God forbid, worse traumas aren't ahead. But I believe very, very strongly, of course, I take for granted the, the eternity of the Jewish people, Metzach Israel. I mean, that for me is, is a given. And so, um, the question really is, Will we, how soon will we come to terms with living in the third era? And, uh, I'd like to see it happen in my lifetime. And there are signs that we are parts of the Jewish people are grappling with how to do that. And, uh, I think that there too, the, the trajectory is, is, is forward. That was Yossi Kleinalevi. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yossi as much as I did. I hope to have many more conversations with many more Jewish thought leaders over the coming months and years. You can learn more about this podcast by going to jewishpeopleideas.com. That's three words without any spaces, Jewish People Ideas. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation. 